So Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, there's a lot packed in this introduction, and the most important things, in my view, about understanding this book are right here. First, it's really vital to understand who this book is addressed to. Who's it addressed to? Yes, believers. And what word does he use? Servants. Servants. It's his servants. This is the Greek word doulos. So this is servant. It's it's a servant, somebody that is in your service. Now, Jesus gave multiple parables about servants, and there were two kinds of servants that he would talk about. What were they? Faithful, unfaithful. They had faithful servants, unfaithful servants. So a servant is somebody that's in a station, their servant. But how they discharge that station, how they discharge that duty, is a matter of whether they're faithful or not, right? So this is a book that's an instruction to his servants. That does not mean that people who aren't his servants couldn't benefit from it. It does not mean that scholars could not benefit from it. But it's written to his servants. Now why is it written to his servants? Look at verse 3. God wants to give a blessing. The point of this is, I want my servants to hear this book, and I want it to give them a blessing. This word blessing is makarios, which just means happy. So, anybody here interested in happiness? Would you rather be happy or miserable? You know, that's, that's a fundamental question. Well, of course, we want to have a happy life. And so he said, this is how you get it if you're my servant. You do three things. You read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. Read, hear, and keep. Read, understand, and then do. Read, understand, do. Now, this is a real familiar pattern in the Bible, isn't it? One of the most famous passages in the Bible is Deuteronomy 30. It's, and it, Deuteronomy 30 is used by Paul in Romans to kind of sum up his whole point in chapter 10. And it's Moses speaking to the children. He says, look, this is not all that hard. This, this is pretty simple. You don't have to have a missionary come from somewhere else and explain it. You don't have to have an angel come down from heaven and explain it. Because it's right there in your heart. You know the right thing to do. So just think about it and then do it. Listen, hear, do. I'm setting before you today two roads. A road of blessing, a road of cursing. God's not in any way threatening the children of Israel, whether they are actually elect or not. He's not saying, well, if you do this road, you were really, I really elected you. If you do that road, I didn't elect you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, are you going to have a blessing? Are you going to have a blessing or not? If you want a blessing, do this. Do, do what you know is right. If you don't want a blessing, then don't do that. that. That's how simple this is. Well, it's the same kind of thing. If you want this blessing, then read this prophecy, my servants. Listen, hear the words of this prophecy, my servants. And then keep, do the the lessons of this prophecy. Why? The time is near. And it's interesting here, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. 
So here we got the Trinity in full operation. So we got God, who is Jesus, giving a message to Jesus, who's going to turn around and give it to John, who's going to turn around and give it to the churches, who are then going to spread it to the rest of the earth. You have this whole message sequence taking place. And he says, things which must take place shortly. Another way to translate this word that's translated here shortly is speedily. This is going to happen real speedily. Well, of course, we know Revelation is about the end of the age. And this was given in the first century. So how can it be that here we are in the 2,000, 2,000 years later, a little short of 2,000 years later, and it's speedily. Think about it. What does the Bible say our life is time-wise? What? Wisp of vapor. It's a wisp of vapor. So think about a wisp of vapor. You're boiling some water to make some oatmeal, and the vapor pops up. How long is it there? Yeah, yeah, a half second, two seconds, something like that. It's just gone. So if you've got a wisp of vapor, it's a lifetime. How many lifetimes in a century? Two? Make that math easy. So you've got 20 centuries, two lives per century, 40 wisps of vapor. So we've been 40 wisps of vapor. So what's that? About 80 seconds. You know, we've been, it's only been a minute since this was written from God's perspective. It speedily still fits in. And, and he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, this is important. The word angel is the Greek word angelos, okay? Angelos, which is just a transliteration than the English word, I suppose. Angelos. And it means messenger. So, you have to look at the context of angelos to know who the messenger is. Uh, if it's a messenger of a spiritual being sent by God from heaven to tell somebody something, then it's what we call angels. But in this instance, we're going to see that Jesus is the actual one who comes and talks to John and gives John this message, for the most part. So Jesus is the messenger. Jesus is called in the Old Testament, most people think, the angel of the Lord. And Jesus, of course, is not an angel in the way we think about it, because angels were created, and Jesus is the creator. But Jesus is a messenger. And he's going to give these letters to the messengers of the churches. And so that's important to bear in mind here that we're using the word messenger here when we look at this angelos. Verse 2, gave it to his servant John. Now this is John the Apostle. So John the Apostle is the only apostle who was actually not murdered. You remember when Jesus is talking to, is it Peter? And he says, what's if, well, what's it to you if I keep John around forever? And John's like, hey, you look at me, I'm not going to die. And so there was, there, there was some kind of rumor that went around. that was, I love those guys. Uh, his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God. So this is John the Apostle who bore witness to the word of God. And although he was not murdered, he was exiled, which is another form of death. The first form of death that Adam and Eve experienced was... Exile. They were they were exiled from the garden. Socrates was given two death choices: hemlock, exile. He chose hemlock. Who bore witness? So witness here bore witness is the Greek word martyreo. There's the root, and so is the word testimony martyreo. So what we're talking about here is uh, martyrdom. Martyrdom is what this book is largely about. And so if you want to be blessed, you you read, you hear. 
And then you do, and one of the main things that this book wants us to do is to make being a witness, a martyr, number one. Now, we tend to think of martyr just in terms of someone who actually has their life terminated as a result of their witness. But the life of a martyr is actually much more than that. You don't live a life of a martyr and then become a martyr when you die. You're either a witness or you're not with the way you live your life. And we'll see this as we go through, I think. If you are living the life of a witness, what you're doing is you're setting yourself completely at odds with the world system because you're living in the king system. You're living in the Jesus' system. And when you set yourself at odds with the world system, there's a price to pay. And that is living as a witness. And that's what God wants us to do. It could cost you your life. It could cost you your position. Most of the time, what it costs you is acceptance by the world. That's the, the primary thing we have to give up as witnesses, is being accepted by the world system. John bore witness. He was persecuted by the Roman government. He wasn't killed. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Tradition says he was boiled in oil and the oil, boiling oil didn't hurt him, so they sent him to Patmos. That's just tradition. Who bore witness. John bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and that's why he was on Patmos. Blessed is he who reads... So what we're going to, one of the things we're going to do as we go through this is read every word. Because that gives us a blessing. And those who hear or understand. So we're going to do our best to understand. But we're not going to necessarily try to understand what the events are actually going to be. Because if God wanted us to totally understand the mechanics of what's going to happen then he would have made it abundantly clear exactly what's going to happen. What's the point? What's the main point we're supposed to get from this? How to be a great witness. That's the main thing we're going to focus on. So what we're going to focus on as we go through Revelation, we'll look at kind of the events and what's going to happen because he tells us about it. But we're not going to so much focus on understanding and predicting you know, we're not, going to, we're not going to focus so much on that. We're going to focus on what he wants us to do. His servants learning to be an awesome witness. That's the, main, that's the main thing Revelation is about, which is why I will assert Revelation is a pretty simple book. It's pretty simple. There's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen. It's going to be really tough. And I want you to hang in there. And if you do, you're going to have amazing blessings. The world hates you. The world's going to hate you. If you're a witness, the world's going to hate you. And that hate's going to hurt. And when it does, just hang in there, man. Hang in there. Because it is worth it. John is a living example of that. Man, he had an uncomfortable life. Patmos is a, about a 30 square mile island that nothing grows on. The word Patmos means infertile. It's just a piece of rock. It, actually, we might feel kind of comfortable there, come to think of it. But he's there. He's there. It's, it's, it's actually a pretty beautiful place in the GNC, but there's nothing there. He's just isolated. He's exiled because he was faithful to bear witness. He was a good witness. And that's an example of what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be willing to be isolated from the world. So that's what we're going to do as we go through here. So, verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. 
Now, so John writes this this letter to these seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor. These churches are on the western side of what is now Turkey. So this Isle of Patmos would be off the coast of the western coast of uh, Turkey. And these churches, uh, some of them are along the coast and some of them are just inland. And he goes through, it's very interesting because he goes through in Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, or Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. When he does those churches, he's actually following them in, an, in a circle. Ephesus is the southwesternmost church, and then the first ones kind of go up right up the coastline, then he comes down and, and then follows them down the interior. It actually makes a circle, which is very interesting. Seven churches, seven in the Bible is kind of a number of completion. Can you think, Matt, offhand of some other sevens that are, that are used? Uh, the Sabbath day. Sabbath day, so seven, seventh day is the day. I'm finished, right? I'm finished on the seventh day. Any others? What is it? The menorah. menorah has seven on it, like the seven lights that are that represent the seven days of God. It's a kind of a completion number, and so we got seven churches that are in Asia. Now there are two prevailing opinions about what these churches represent. One prevailing opinion is that each of these churches represents a predominant church period, like the characteristics of each of these churches are dominant in a particular age of, uh, of churches going forward. That's the one predominant view. So, for example, uh, the church of Ephesus would go like from 33 A.D. to 100 A.D. And, and this, like the early church... And when he talks about Ephesus, he's talking about the early church period, for example. So that's one predominant view. The other predominant view is that these are seven different kinds of churches. And the seven different kinds of churches you can find in any age. You can find a cold church, and you can find an on-fire church, and you can find a persecuted church. And both of those views, I think, are supportable. Me, of course, being a a person that believes in the paradoxes in the Bible and that God is a paradox and that everything we see is paradoxical, I would, of course, believe they're both representative. And in fact, this is what I would recommend to you, is that this chronological representation where Ephesus is 33 to 100 or whatever is representative of the churches in the Roman Empire, the the Western civilization. Because, you remember from Daniel's dream, and we're probably going to do a lot of Daniel as we do Revelation too because the two books are so intertwined. But you remember in Daniel's dream when he has the statue that tells all of world history, it has four kingdoms and then the kingdom of God. In the four kingdoms you've got the head of gold which was Babylon and then you've got the breast of silver which was the Medo-Persian Empire. And then you got the bronze torso, which is the Greek Empire, and Alexander the Great, who conquers the world and shifts the world from an eastern axis to a western axis. And then the Romans come in and basically just appropriate the Alexander's empire. And so you got the Roman world, and that's the final age before there's another kingdom that comes in that's not made with hands of man. It's a it's a rock. 
in this in this dream it's a rock that's carved without the hands of man it comes in smashes the statue and fills the whole earth so you got the kingdom of god so between the kingdom of god and the roman empire it's all roman empire and if you'll study the roman empire and and how romans thought it'll all be very familiar to you uh, romans awesome at technology as a matter of fact the pinnacle of the roman empire the Romans basically had everything we have today with the exception of trained electrons and internal combustion engines. And they, there was a mill that they found that could, that could mill flour for a town of 50,000 people. And if, if you go to places like Masada or some of these uh, big works that they did, you'll realize they had cranes and machinery and phenomenal engineering. As a matter of fact, the roads of Europe today are largely built along the old Roman roads. In some cases, without much in the way of change. Uh, they, they would build aqueducts that would go for miles and miles and miles and just have barely any elevation change, but just the right amount to drain that water from long distances. The water system in Rome today still uses those ancient aqueducts that, that they built long ago. They were brilliant people that knew how to make, knew how to make life easy. We, you can go to uh, uh, Bet Shan in, in Israel... And it's a, it was a Roman city that it was destroyed by earthquakes, so it was, they couldn't rebuild it. They just left it. So it's pretty well intact. And you go along, and they've got sewers that go right down the center of the street under this, this capstone of the street, just like we would have. You can go into the Roman bath, and they've got whirlpools. You know, they just shoot the water in and at an angle, so it whirlpools. They've got, like, uh, uh, epidariums and, and uh, what's the hot one? Caldera and said they've got this all sauna thing. It's a it's a really advanced city, advanced civilization. And the Romans, I mean, they like to go to football games, and they would all go to these big coliseums, have football games, and watch people smash into each other, and you know, and somebody dies. Oh, too bad. You know, we'll just have somebody. Maybe next time he'll do better. Uh, you know, they. And they, uh, you know, have have trade, and you know, it's entertainment, it's 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 order, it's 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 very familiar to us. We went to a Roman villa, and they had found some of the the wall, like the wall plaster, where they had the, you could still see the color and the decoration of this of this villa. And I thought to myself, I kind of like that. You know, I, I would I would be real comfortable in this Roman world in terms of how it's situated. Oh, it's because. We're Roman in our mentality. We're still Rome. So, on the one hand, I think that these churches do give in the Western world, in the Roman world, what the dominant characteristics in these ages are. On the other hand, there's a lot more to the world than just the Roman center. And you can just think about today. Today, the Western church is probably the Laodicean church. It's really rich. It's kind of got a lot going. It's willing to kind of not mess with the world too much, lest, lest you have uh, problems. But not in the Muslim world. The church there, you got kids standing for their faith and having their head chopped off. And not in China, where you know, there's official persecution and a lot of Acts chapter 1, or chapter 1 through 5 type stuff's happened in our lifetime. So, on the one hand, you, you can always find all these churches' uh, characteristics at any point in time. On the other hand, in the Roman world, you've got this dominant thing. That, that's what I would pr- pr- propose. Anybody got a different view? 
You know, there is this thing that says if, if you read this wrong and teach it wrong, you have these plagues added to you. So I would appreciate the correction and instruction here with just, you know, usually I'm a little bit forward with these things, but on this one, I'm, I'm just really appreciate your input. If I show up one week and I've got boils all over me, you'll know just to kind of erase everything. All right. So John to the seven churches in, in Asia, and we're going to go through these churches. Now, who goes to a church? Ah, oh, that's a trick question. Because in our world, we think of a church as a building, right? And you, it's something you go to. But the word church is the word ecclesia. Does anybody know the basic background of the word ecclesia? There was no such thing as a, a Christian church before church was founded, right? And they, they, this was a word that pre-existed the Christian church. You know what it meant before? Assembly. Assembly. Gathering. In fact, the Brethren Church still uses the term gathering. They, don't even, they won't even use the word church. It was a gathering. So if you had a vote, like the, the, the Greek city-states would have votes where the population would come and gather for the vote, that was an ecclesia. Then to gather in the street and have a vote. Sorry? It's a caucus. That's right. It's a caucus. So the church in a town, that's why they say it's the church in the town. It was, the, it was the, when the believers in the town gathered. That was the church. When two or three are gathered together, there I am. So if you gathered, then you're the church. So it's just the believers gathering. Now, they did have unbelievers that would sometimes come to the meetings, and you would see, like in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, when you gather, don't speak in tongues without an interpreter. Because if somebody comes and you've got all these different people, everybody's doing something different, they won't know what's going on. So, so there was, was some of that, people coming. But that's not who he's writing this to. You get this thing in the, in the Bible where people say, well, He's writing the churches, but really what he has focus on is the unbeliever that might be coming into the congregation because you've got to get them saved. No. No, that is not what we're doing here. Anybody can read these words, and an unbeliever can read any word in the Bible, and it's a testimony to them, and the Spirit can convict them. And, and they don't, But they don't have to read the Bible. They can just look at the stars, right? So there's always a testimony going on to unbelievers, but this message is written to the churches, which is the gathering of the saints. Verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So this is the opening of the letter. Now, I really can't do this, but it's still worth just the futile attempt. Just think about yourself as being a first century believer in one of these cities. And by the way, these were Greek colonies. All these cities were... Greece is a big pile of rocks. And you can't really grow much there. And they, and they burgeoned this 
empire type civilization and they, had, they started colonizing and Turkey is a very fertile area. So the colony towns in Turkey actually became bigger than the towns in Greece. And then Rome came in and just basically expropriated all the things Greece had. So these are Greek colonies that became Roman cities, all of these things. So just think about yourself being one of these Romans who's converted, become a believer. And you come to assembly one week and somebody stands up and says... We got a letter from the Apostle John. I'm going to read it to you. Would that not be mind-blowing? I mean, it, that would really be something. I, there's no way I can imagine what that would be like. But man, what, what a situation. Grace, And the first thing he says when he gets that letter is grace to you and peace. Now, if I got a letter from God... And I wanted him to tell me two things that I could have. Like, I'm giving you these two things. What would come first to my mind? I probably would say, you know, happiness. Great riches. Long life. Well-being. Because those are all pleasant circumstances. That's what, that's what would come into my mind first. And instead, he says, grace and peace. Now, grace is the word... Charis, or charis, which means favor. And we, th- we typically will define favor in the Bible as unmerited favor, or grace, sorry, as unmerited favor. And, and when it comes from God, that's appropriate. It's not always used as coming from God, like there's a verse that says, and Jesus grew in favor with God and man. So that is man giving favor to God. And in that case they did because Jesus was an amazing person. So they're comparing him to a standard. But when God gives favor, it's because he chooses to. Because there's no standard he's comparing to. He just gives it. So what about God's favor and peace from God is notable? I think perhaps it is that those are two things that are completely disconnected with the circumstances of this life. Because the circumstances of this life have a lot of brutality to it. Your body decays a little every day once you become an adult. First, you can't play sports anymore. And then you can't run anymore. And then you have trouble walking. And then you get up and you have... You know, it just kind of goes through this decay. And, And everything's like that. And then bad things happen. And, you know, there's a lot of suffering. And as we're going to see in this book... What we have to look forward to is it gets worse. (laughs) But God's favor, if we're His witnesses, is something that supersedes the circumstances of this world. And God's peace surpasses understanding. And that's what God wants us to have because our life in this world is not always going to be pleasant. Especially if we stand against the principles of this world and live as a witness. Grace and peace. From who? Well, from three different things. Him who was and is and is to come. Some of the kind of Greekish things I looked at show that this is to come as the tense of is coming. So was, is, is to come. That's the first one. And from the seven spirits before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So here we have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. 
It's interesting, though, how the Father is described, who, who was and is and is to come. Why was and is to come? Why not Creator? Why not Shepherd? Why about was and is and is to come? Well, I think perhaps that is because verse 7 is an emphasis in this book. Behold, He is coming in the clouds. So one of the underpinnings of this book of Revelation is the inevitable return of Jesus again. I heard a sermon one time that I thought was awesome. And it made the point that Jesus, the King of the universe, coming to earth to take full possession of His kingdom as is prophesied in the Bible over and over again. That's a no-brainer. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's logical. It's expected. It really makes no sense for anything else to happen. Jesus coming as a servant, taking on the form of a lowly person, tended by shepherds, living a life as a servant, and dying like a criminal, makes no sense. Humanly speaking, no sense whatsoever. The only reason that makes any sense is because God so loved the world. That's the only reason that makes any sense whatsoever. So the idea that it makes sense that He came the first time, but I'm not sure about coming, Him coming the second time, that's a crazy thought. It's just the opposite. Of course He will come to redeem the world. The crazy thing is that He came the first time and did what He did then. That's the hard one to understand. So the idea that Jesus is coming and He's going to fulfill everything He promised and He's going to take His rightful place as the King of the world, of course that's going to happen. So was, is, is to come. This is a really important characteristic of God is everything's already mapped out and it is going to happen. Now, things are going to get worse, but the outcome is predetermined, which is a wonderful thing to think of, especially as things get worse. And then you have this spirit. So you got the Father, was, is, is to come. You have the spirits before His throne. So you got the throne room here and you got the spirit, but it's seven spirits. Why seven spirits? Because you got the Holy Spirit, seven spirits. What? I thought the Holy Spirit's one person, and now He's described as seven spirits. What's going on there? I don't know. I don't actually know what's going on there. But John is going to tell us in verse 10 that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And so there's this thing that happens in Revelation that we're going to see over and over again that's very fascinating. I want you to be thinking about it, and maybe we can have some mutual combined insights about this. Because it's very interesting. Uh, We're going to see that there are seven churches on the peninsula of Turkey, that are Roman cities with brick buildings and physical people with flesh and blood. And then there's seven candlesticks that are in heaven that represent those churches. So you've got seven physical, tangible churches, seven candlesticks, and Jesus is going to say, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to remove your candlestick. Like they're totally connected. And then we've got seven messengers, which... My best guess is that's the person that's going to read these letters when it comes out. And and then you have seven stars that are in Jesus' hand. And somehow they're connected. They're they're connected, the two things. So there's this idea that there's some stuff going on in heaven, and then there's stuff going on on earth, and it's connected. 
This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think this is an important concept because we're going to see so much of this, so so much connection between what's going on in, in heaven and what's going on earth. Let's go to Daniel chapter 10 for just a second. And this is a really fascinating episode that happens in uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel saw this vision, and then he had been praying to understand what this vision is. If I remember right, he's been, he's been uh, praying for three weeks. Verse 2, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. So he's, he's fasting, he wants to understand this vision. And so in 10.10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. So I was dispatched 21 days ago, and I'm just now getting here. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. What? So Daniel is a bureaucrat in this Persian administration, in the government. There's a king of Persia on the throne of Persia. And so here comes this angel, let's say it's Gabriel, and he says, I came, to, I came to give you this message, but the king of Persia withstood me. You know, it's pretty clear that this is not the physical king that Daniel knew. This is some spiritual do- dominion happening. So again, it appears that there's stuff going on on earth. And there's like there's a king on earth. And then there's a demonic king in the heavenly realm that parallels the king on earth. And so this guy comes, you can't come and talk to this person in my kingdom. And so they're fighting for 21 days. The angel can't get through. And so finally, Michael comes, who's the kind of the guardian of the people of Israel, and, and knocks this prince of Persia aside so the angel can get through and talk to Daniel. Isn't that bizarre? You, you see movies like this where there's like this thing happening in this realm where they're playing chess and every time they move a chess piece, something happens down on earth. And actually, in Greek mythology, it's like this. Greek mythology has this idea that there's all these gods up in heaven and when somebody bowls, you know, there's an earthquake down on earth. Or if somebody shoots somebody with an arrow on the, up in the god realm, you know, then somebody falls in love on earth. There's this connection. And if you read the Greek mythology, it's a connection. Well, all those mythological ideas are some perversion of something that's true. And so there's this real connection between heaven and earth. And we as kind of Roman, scientific, cause-effect people don't tend to think of that. But, you know, if you get to know someone from an Eastern culture, they go to the other ditch. So Ken went through this episode where he got lost on the river with Ron, the famous episode. (laughs) 
And um, I, I actually felt really bad when this happened because it was like 10 o'clock at night. And they still weren't back. They're supposed to be back at like 6.30 or something. They're still not back. Everybody started freaking out, calling the police and stuff. And I kept saying, it's Ken and Ron. They're lost. <laughs> don't worry about it. And I started feeling, maybe I'm just heartless. I don't know. <laughs> well, sure enough, they had got like, got what, like three miles past the takeout point or something. And so they, yeah. 10 miles, 10 miles past. And uh, they came back and they started telling about the guys that came and rescued them. And they started giving them, you know, well, you're not the only idiots. You know, we, there's other idiots we fished out of here story. And one of them was some Caribbean guys come from an Eastern culture. And they were canoeing down this Lano River. And suddenly they came, there were some black cows in the river. Cannot go any further. Because everybody knows that the, the spirits are in every, see, they're animistic. And that's the way Af- African culture is an animistic culture. So if you see black cows, that means the spirits are telling you to stop. Because that's what a black cow means. So they couldn't go any further and they had to go rescue them. Uh, our friends, the Campbells, who are missionaries in Africa, they say that in the villages, even today, if somebody dies, they'll, they'll get the casket and they'll start walking around the village with the casket to find out who killed this person. You know, somebody gets eaten by an alligator. You know, they'll, they'll take the casket and they'll start, who killed this person? Because there has to be some sort of spiritual cause effect for everything. And they'll, you know, they'll finally come and hone in on this person and Terry here and they'll come out and say, you killed this guy, the casket said so. And the guy will say, well, I had no idea I did, I must have done it in my sleep. So they'll take some, some knives and they'll cut some little holes and put some spices down in there to exercise the spirits and now everything's okay. There's a full explanation for what happened. I mean, we know what the spirits did, and we also exercised it. You know, that's a, so they have a spiritual explanation for everything. And, of course, the truth is both. You know, there's a cause-effect world that God made, and there's this connection with the spiritual world going on all the time. And we're going to see that a ton as we go through this passages, okay? So we're in this awesome. See, we're getting blessed because we're reading and we're trying to understand. So we'll get to the do part. Always we go through here and we see the seven churches and what he tells us to do. And every one of them is going to be applicable to us. But right now what we can do is just understand that, you know, this world doesn't like the things of God. And when you come into conflict with them, you've got a basic choice to make. And that is, am I going to be a witness or not? And what we're going to see in Revelation is, you know, this has nothing to do whatsoever with whether we're a servant. It has to do with whether we're an awesome servant or an unfaithful servant. And the big point in this book is going to be how worth it it is to bear the tribulation of fighting the world and standing for Christ because it's so incredibly worth it. And this is being told to us by someone who has paid the price and he's now on this deserted island and saying, boy, this is a great place to be. I'm just where I need to be. All right, so we'll keep going next time. Thank you.